So maybe you've noticed it sounds a little different this morning in here. If you uh, try and figure out why it sounds different, uh, we have speakers on the ceiling instead of on stands, right? So, and we also have this new little speaker. Look at this. Isn't that cool? Yeah. That's a speaker. I know it. Can you believe it? It's crazy. Uh, anyway, so that's why it sounds a little different. So uh, thanks to Bill, who uh, came in this week and got these uh, hung up for us and all of that. So yeah, that's awesome. So appreciate that, Bill, for all your work on that and much, much more. But anyway, it's uh, good to have it's a, a richer sound to me. I don't know. Not that it's more expensive, but that, you know, just fuller, maybe. Fuller sound. Um, anyway, so this morning, uh, I, uh, I want to zero in on some realities in our culture, first of all, uh, as I like to do, <laughs> is to, to, to recognize that we are right now in a, a culture that is uh, in a fight, in essence, uh, we're, we're all fighting each other, it seems, in America right now. There, there's battlegrounds everywhere. It, it seems like every time you turn on the TV or read the paper or read the news on the Internet or whatever, there's nothing but bad news. There's nothing but this group fighting against this group, this group, you know, uh, battling this other group. And, and, you know, some of it's like real war, like with guns and stuff like that, but, uh, but a lot of it is just war of words and ideas and attacking one another. And uh, it, it, it's, it's unfortunate, but we, I think we can't help but even feel like those who are among, uh, among our leaders in our country are actually stoking the flame. That they actually are not even trying to kind of figure this out and, and, and get people to get along. It's like almost like they want us to be at each other's throat more and more. And another reality with that is that there, there's also a sense within our culture that we're, we're also seeking to find unity. The, the reality of societies for all of time is that we have struggled to get along with one another. I mean, if you go back in thousands of years in the past, and, and all societies, as soon as we started coming together in communities, there's been wars, there's been battles, there's been fights among us, and it's hard for us as human beings to get along. It's hard for us, you know, the more and more people that we have around us, it seems like the, the more and more opportunity there is for conflict and for struggles and for arguments to happen and for division to come. The, 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 the answer to this throughout our history is through creating uh, really societies of hierarchy. Uh, this is, in a sense, how we have kind of helped to bring the peace. We demand the peace by having certain classes of people who are in control. Uh, our, our societies are, are, are ruled by a lot of different things at different times, and depending on the society, it's a different thing that's ruling it. There's been societies in the past, that, and even today, that are ruled by genetics. In other words, the, the ones who have the proper gene pool, the ones who have been born into the proper family, they're the ones with the power. They're the ones in control. And if you happen to be born into a different family that doesn't have that power and control, they're not the right family, then you have no power. Other cultures, it's, it's determined by your gender. Some, it's determined by your religion. If you have a right, the right religion, if you're born into that right religion and you claim the right religion, then you are in control and have power. Sometimes it's also, actually most of the time, it seems like it's centered around wealth. The, the ones who have the wealth are the ones who have power. And that's certainly true 
in our culture today. America is driven by the powerful, and the powerful are those who are wealthy. Now, we um, recognize in that that there's certain society structures that are better than others. And although America is driven by the wealthy and the power is in the hands of the wealthy, there is at least in, in our culture the opportunity to change your stars, quoting the book, A Knight's Tale, or the no, book, the movie, Knight's Tale. It might be a book, too, actually. I don't know. Um, anyway, Knight's Tale, right? That you could change your stars. You could be a Thatcher's son, but someday you could actually be, you know, in royalty in some sense. You could have, you could be called a lord, right? And, and that we in America, we can actually change the class that we're born into, right? When we're born, we, if we're born into a, fa- a, clo- a, a poor family, we don't have to stay there our whole life. We can move up. There's opportunities for that, that we can make more money. We can move up in the classes and become middle class and maybe even upper class someday and, and begin actually to, to work our way into the class that has this power. But it's also downward mobility as well, right? Those who may have been born with power can end up losing that power over life. So there's a good thing about that. And American society does that, I think, in a sense, well and really well, better than many other cultures in the world. However, excuse me, not however, but also we see this reality in the Corinthian church as well. Uh, The Corinthian city was in the Roman Empire. And it's, again, once amaz- again, amazing to see the similarities between that culture and American culture today, where, again, it was the wealthy who had the power, but also there was mobility within the Roman culture as well, that you could work your way up, and you didn't have to always be in your class, whatever you were born into. But we see also that Paul is once again, uh, throughout this book, been, been uh, challenging the church in Corinth. Because they are allowing the culture to determine how they operate as a church. That their society within the church is mimicking and is taking on the same rules as the culture around them. And so Paul, especially, and we see this reality, this, this class structure of the wealthy and the poor in the last chapter we were in, in chapter 11, right? Where they're communion, and they're practicing communion together. But the rich are showing up, and they're having this extravagant meal for communion, right? Before the communion, and, and they're, but not sharing with the poor. And so they are going, like, and they're over full, and, and then the poor are showing up, and they're still starving, and they've got nothing. And, and so there's this weird, and, and, you know, the rich are looking down on the poor, and the poor are envying the rich, but also being angry with them. And so there's this battle going in in the church because they've allowed the cultural perspective of society, allowed the culture's rules to kind of come into the church and, and allow that to operate into the church as well. And so Paul says, no, 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 this is not the way we're supposed to do that. And again, here in this chapter, he hits him again on, the, uh, on this as well. But I think even more specifically, it, it's like Paul is here trying to give us a, a summary or, or, or a vision, if you will, of God's economy of how a society should operate. That, that he's actually coming in to give a, a vision of the way that biblical community is meant to happen. The way that we should see things as a church. When we come on Sunday mornings, what is going to happen here? He's, Paul's giving this vision of what that looks like and how it should be different from the world around them. So let's go ahead and read our passage, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verses 12 through 26. 
And Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may, all, may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The world has a perspective. It's recognized through the years that the class system doesn't work very well in some sense, that it breaks down in a sense, and especially in America, over the last uh, couple of decades now at least, we have, there's this rising tide within our country of trying to somehow mitigate the class system, to, to somehow transform us as a society into something that is more egalitarian. The, the recognition that there's this unfairness within the class system, you know, that it's unfair that the rich can have these things, better health care maybe, or better have a better house, or a better car, or, you know, faster internet. You know, that, that's, you know, that we've recognized the unfairness of that, and so we're striving to find a way to equalize that out. In, in our culture's mind, inequality causes conflict. It, it's because we're unequal, or unequal, that, that we have the conflict among us. It's because some people have and some people don't have. If everybody have that had, then it, you know, we would be closer together. And so inequality is what causes the conflict. And so our culture is striving for a couple of things. First of all, they're, they're striving for uniformity. Not just for everyone to be treated the same, but for everyone to have the same stuff. They're also striving for conformity. Not that everyone would have a common experience and perspective, but that actually everyone would have the same. That everyone would be the same. According to our culture, the answer 
to drawing us into greater unity in our country is through uniformity and conformity. In essence, they believe that sameness brings unity and the destruction of diversity brings unity. But God has a different plan. This, this is the world's perspective. The world comes and says, you know, we just need to get all closer together. We need to be more alike. We need to have more of the same experiences. If we were all the same, then we wouldn't have arguments. We wouldn't be at each other. We would feel there was this equitability of what we are ex experiencing, and so now we can get along. But God has got a different plan for unity. God's plan is very different than that because he calls, first of all, us to respect our diversity. He is not calling us to a classless society. Sometimes some Christian leaders in perspective uh, comes up with this idea that, you know, we're meant to have this classless society as a church. In essence, that we're all the same. But that is not what Scripture draws us to. Scripture and God is not calling us to uniformity. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, I just read it. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. He arranged them. He arranged the noses and the eyes and the ears and the toes. He made us different. So it's not a call to, one, to uniformity. It's a call to respect our diversity. It's also a call for us to celebrate our diversity. It's not about becoming a homogenous group that all looks, smells, and acts the same. That's not what he's calling us to. He's not calling us to conformity. 1 Corinthians 12, 20, again, I just read it. As it, is, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And at the end of that passage, I read in verse 6, 26, that we are going to celebrate, right? When one portion of the body, one part of the body is mourning or in struggle or in pain, we all are in pain with that. When it's you know, been rejoicing about something or had celebration, we all celebrate with it. See, God's plan is different because he calls us to unity despite our diversity. He doesn't force us or call us to all be the same. He says, recognize you're different. I've made you that way. And then choose unity anyway. The key ways that we can do this that are outlined in Scripture, and I think in this passage, are two. There's two ways, to, I think, that start us on this path to be able to be united in the midst of our diversity. And where we can find, I think, true unity. Is that we have to recognize, first of all, the value of diversity, and second of all, the need of diversity. See, our culture is, is trashing diversity in a sense. I mean, it wants everyone to be respected, everyone to be able to be diverse, but they want those diverse people to all become and think and do and live like they do. And they say, if you would just think and live and act and do the things that I do, then we all would be united. But again, this is not what Scripture calls us to. First of all, it calls us to value diversity. All people, and this is a statement that all of you will agree with, I'm sure, but all people are valuable. It's true. But what do we mean by that? What does it mean that all people are valuable? 
Because, see, I think our, our connection between what that means and how we live that out sometimes is it, it's, it's, it's split, right? It's, doesn't, it's not a reality, right? What we believe and how we live sometimes is very different. 1 Corinthians 12, 15 says, If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. All parts are valuable. We need the foot. We need the hand. We need the eye. We need the ear. We, all of those are valuable pieces. But how do we understand their value? First of all, they are valuable as they are. All people are valuable for who they are. Not who they will become someday. We so often look at the value of an individual and say, well, you know, they're pretty sinful right now, but someday they're going to be great, and so then they'll be really valuable. So, I mean, they're, as a human being, they're valuable, but, you know, until they really, you know, get more sanctified, then, they're, then their real value will come out. So it's almost like, you know, this hopeful, like, I'm going to value them as a human being and knowing that the Spirit's in them, but, you know, you know and not until they actually become sanctified are they really going to be fully valued. Now, true, sanctification makes, you know, it, it allows us to live out more this righteousness that God has given us. But we need to recognize that the value that Scripture calls us to is not a value in what their future potential is. It's value in who they are today. That God loves them just as they are. And that we as a church would love them just as they are. Their personality, just the way it is, whether they're extrovert or introvert, you know, it doesn't matter, right? We love them all. They all have value. The reality is, is that God is the one who redeems. And He redeems our personality, even those weaknesses within our personality. The amazing truth about who God is and what He can do is that He can take my sin and He can use it to bring glory to Himself. Now the world says, and oftentimes we as Christians would say, if the person is sinning, that that's all bad and it's just all junk and we should get rid of it all. That that's not valuable, but God is able to change the sin into something that's valuable. It's not that we promote, should we sin all the more? And what does Paul say? No! We are striving to live righteously, but we, when we see people come into our church, are we valuing them for who they are today? Do we recognize that value? Also, what does value mean? It means what they've experienced or where they're at in life right now. Not just a personality thing, not just who they are, but where they are in life. Again, oftentimes we as Christians, we see someone who's in a difficult situation and we just think and think, you know, if we could just get that situation taken care of, if we can just get them out of that painful situation, if we can get them off of the streets, then all of a sudden now they're valuable. We have a hard time as Christians seeing the value in pain and suffering and struggle. The value of homelessness. See, again, it comes from this American triumphalistic perspective that when I become a Christian, that means my life's going to become better in a worldly standard way, not in a spiritual way. That we think the solution to our spiritual advancement, our, our sanctification, is about a place in life not a spiritual condition. And the homeless person on the street, can he just be, can he be as spiritual and in the same relationship 
that I have. Can he? We say yes, but do we really act that way? Do we treat the homeless person on the street that way? So it's evaluating not just who they are, but where they are. And then finally, evaluating of what they can do. How God has gifted them. To recognize that all gifts are valuable. All talents are valuable. Whether they're public or private. Whether the things that everyone sees or no one sees. Whether the, you know, the things that we can appreciate and will be helpful to us as a church. Or whether it's just them struggling along to care for their kids at home. See, we, we, again, like to have this, you know, this sense that you know, uh, certain talents are more valuable than others. Certain abilities are more valuable than others, especially when it comes to a church organization. And so we value the pastor above others. Or maybe we devalue the pastor. Mm, that pastor, who needs him anyway, right? right? But we, and we... We, we elevate certain gifts and talents and abilities above others. You see, it's, the valuing is not just some generic valuing of human life. That, that somehow that, you know, just because they're human and God created them, that they're valuable. That's true, right? I mean, that's the reality of Scripture. But it's more than that. It's valuing them for who they are right now, in, even in their sinful ways, even in the personalities that are really difficult and abrasive. I mean, my wife has, she has to put up with me a lot, right? And I got some crazy ideas and things that I do, and she still loves me in that, right? I mean, she's a saint. Amen, right? You think I'm nervous getting up here and preaching? You should see her, man. She's like, oh, what's you going to say this time? Oh, Lord, please. Anyway. It's not just a generic valuing, but it's uh, valuing them and uh, who they are, where they are, and what they can do, even today, now, wherever that is, whatever that looks like. Second, we have to, have a, we have to recognize the need for diversity, the need for diversity. Not just are they valuable, but the fact that we need them. 1 Corinthians 12, 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Paul is bringing out this perspective that we need each other. We need each other as we are. We don't need them to become like us. Once they become like us, then why do we need them? We've already got us. But this is the common perspective, not just in the world, but in our churches. That when you come to our church, you need to be more like us. When you become more like us, then you'll fit in better and we can get along better. We'll be more united. Instead of respecting and recognizing the need for the diversity. We need to have a common perspective that Jesus is Lord. But we also need to celebrate the fact that we're all different in that and not expect everyone to conform to our way of doing Christianity. See, our churches oftentimes will elevate certain personality types. You don't need to raise your hand, but I'm sure many of you have been in a church before where you felt like you're just, their mission is, not, is impossible for you to accomplish within your personality type. 
And, and maybe you recognize that and so you left. Maybe you just spent years and years in that church feeling guilty because you didn't have the extroverted personality that allowed you to walk down the mall or the sidewalk and talk to people you'd never talked to before about Jesus. See, we set up sometimes our vision and our mission of our church, and it's, but it's all about promoting a certain personality type. And so what happens to those churches is the ones who don't have that personality type either stay and feel guilty or leave and go to another church where they can find a, a church that's focused on their personality type. And so pretty soon, over years, all of a sudden, that church is all one personality type because they are promoting a mission that, or Christianity that highlights or uplifts this particular uh, personality type. But the reality is, again, we need all of the different personality types. We need all the different kind of dynamics and, and way people interact and, and how they, their strengths and their weaknesses within personality. We need the extroverts. We need the introverts. We need them all. I know it's hard for me to say that as an extrovert, but we do need introverts. It's just what the Bible says. I just got to listen to that. But we also need to recognize that we need all the experiences too. Not just the personality types, but we need the experiences that people come with. We need homeless people in this church. We need to understand that dynamic. And we don't need homeless people to come in this church that we can then get them off the street and so that they're in a better position. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but I'm just saying the goal is not to get them off the street. We need to listen to what the Spirit is leading and what we need to do with that. Because maybe on the street is exactly where God wants that person. But that we would learn to be able to understand and appreciate and recognize our need to have that perspective in our church of what it really is like to live on the street. So often our churches will zero in on a particular Christian ethic. And that is the vision, that's the mission of the church whether it be social justice issues or whether it be street ministries or whether it be biblical studies and theology and understanding of teaching and those skills. We, we, we then begin to sell that as what it means to be successful as a church is that we are this particular Christian ethic. And by doing so, again, we are making those who don't have those natural experiences to feel guilty or outcasts in their own church. And all it does is lead to a church that's more and more homogenous, more and more the same. We also need to recognize the need for all of the gifts. All of them. Not just the ones that we like, not just the ones that are really popular, not the ones that are really kind of cool. We need all of the gifts. All of them, all of the talents, all of the abilities. Teaching and leadership and tongues and healing and prophecies. We need it all. So often again, our churches create a Christian hierarchy within the spiritual gifts. And they elevate certain gifts above all the rest. And they focus on those things. And so if you don't have that particular gift, again, you're stuck in a church where you're constantly feeling guilty because you don't have the gift that makes you the better Christian, that allows you to be successful as a Christian. 
This is not what Scripture is drawing us to in community together. It is understanding the need to have all of the gifts. See, what the Bible clearly teaches is that true unity, real unity, only comes in diversity. I would propose that most, if not all, North American churches, including this one, are not experiencing true unity because they're all too homogenous. They've been split up by denominational lines, by visions that are so narrowly focused that only a certain personality type or Christian ethic or certain gifts will fit into that. And so what it does is it attracts all of those personality types, all of those particular ethic issues that people are concerned with, and all of those particular spiritual gifts that people have to that one church. And it alienates everyone else. True unity only comes through diversity. True unity is when you look at the person next to you, you know they're totally different from you in personality. They rub you the wrong way. It's hard to have a conversation. Communication is difficult. That person is in a totally different perspective of life and and what they experience from day to day. They're maybe living on the street and you're living in this really nice house and you just have no idea how to relate to that. that. That they would actually have giftings that are totally different than you, but... You choose to be united with that person. You choose to value them as they are. You choose to recognize your need for having their voice in your life. No no matter how difficult that is, no no matter how challenging that is, true unity is only experienced in diversity. Now, I just feel like I have to mention this. We are, again, in America especially, we are in a divided church. Denominational lines. Even within denominations. I mean, we have, yeah, I'll say this. We have um, five alliance churches in Reading. When I came here, I was excited about that. And then I got here and I realized, oh my gosh, these pastors don't get together. And, And I call them up and it's hard for them. I say, hey, you want to do lunch? And I mean, I gra- I'm, trust me, I understand being a pastor, it's busy. It's like you've got a lot of things going on, right? It's hard to fit something else in. But even the Alliance churches in Reading were divided. And, and it's not even just about different missions, right? It's about the fact that our pastors won't even, they don't, they don't find value in being together and recognizing our diversity within the pastoral pool. We are a divided church in America especially, but I think around the world. And so I want to say this, though, that the denominations are not all bad. I am not calling out the other alliance churches and saying, oh, you guys are evil and ugly and you're going against God's will and you need to repent and come back to Christ. That's not my point. Because God uses denominations. He's used the pooling of skills to do amazing and powerful and wonderful things in our world. Even the alliance itself, because of its focus on missions, has done a great job of taking the gospel to the darkest reaches, darkest corners of our world. And part of the reason that they were able to do that is because they have pooled their resources. But what we have to recognize 
and this is what I think oftentimes we have failed to recognize, is that denominations have a great weakness. And I highlighted this a little bit last week. If the charismatic church is over here by itself, only doing its perspective on what it means to have spiritual gifts, and the evangelical church is over here, only doing its perspective of what spiritual gifts is, they are both weaker because they need the other one. They need the other perspective. And this is the weakness of denominations, is that we are so divided that we, get, we go to extremes because we don't have that counter voice to tell us, wait a second, what about this? The Bible also says this. We need each other. And so as denominations, it's not all evil and bad, but we must recognize the weakness of that. And we as a church... This isn't, we, we don't got the corner of the market on truth. But we need to recognize as well our weakness and just being who we are. And that if we're just going to focus and narrowly focus on one particular type of person, Christian, or one particular uh, uh, ethic of Christianity, or one particular spiritual gift, then we're going to be limited in what we can do. Because we're going to miss out on the other perspective. Throughout Christian history, the last couple thousand years, actually it goes before that too, before Christianity began in the Old Testament, persecution has a way of drawing the church together. Because when you start to get under the punishment of death for believing what you believe, then you're not so worried about what somebody believes about spiritual gifts. You're just worried if they believe in Jesus. And as Christianity is getting pushed further and further to the outskirts of American culture, we are seeing a rise within the church of more leaders and Christians calling for unity, biblical unity, unity in diversity in the church. But I have a question for us today. Do we have to wait? for persecution? Do we have to wait for the persecution to happen for us to expand our borders and our perspectives? I've never seen it done in a church, and, and I, I struggle with even laying this out because I realize perhaps this is bigger than I even understand fully. But uh, can we do church where we truly do to love, accept, value, and recognize the need of diversity? Can, can we as a church have a, a big enough vision that we're not eliminating people? A big enough vision that we, we don't isolate people and make them feel like guilty because they can't do it because it's based on a personality or it's based on a particular ethic or it's based on a particular gift that you have to have. Can we have a big enough vision that everyone, no matter their personality, no matter their gifting, no matter their experiences in life, would be able to say, yes, I can fit into that church vision? And I just wonder, is it even possible? Can we do it? 
Perhaps now is the time. Perhaps the Spirit is doing a work in our country. And the work maybe is centered around this, this unifying force to bring people together. And worship team, why don't you come, come up and as you do, let me bring land the plane as some have said. The vision of church that the Bible gives is as a place of unity. A place where all are welcome. Where, where the door is open for all. All personalities, all experiences. All giftings. But especially it seems like for the imperfect. Where it's a place where all are welcome. That, that we accept all believers, especially the ones who are different than me. The vision of the church in Scripture is a place with the most diversity. Not the least. It's been said by, I can't remember who it was, maybe somebody in here knows, but that uh, Sunday morning is the most divided time of the church all week long. It's because we're all going to different churches that meet our flavor, you know, that, that match what we like, that fit our vision of what I want to do, of, of, you know, have the personality that I fit into, that have, you know, the giftings that I like to do. But this is not the vision of the church that God gives us. It's a vision where it's meant to be the most diverse spot in the entire world on Sunday morning. That each church should be at the most diverse place in their community. Where ethnicities don't matter. There's, there's all ethnic groups that are there. Races are there. All the generations are there. All the personalities are there. The wealthy are there. The needy and the homeless are there. The socially acceptable are there. The outcasts are there. The surfers are there right next to the professors. The lawyers are there next to the retail clerks. The doctors next to the welders. The conservatives next to the liberals. The, the Democrats next to the Republicans. The Calvinists next to the Arminians and the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and the Pentecostals and the Evangelicals. The theologians, the evangelists, the preachers, the teachers, the prayer warriors, the leaders, the chaplains, the musicians. Sunday morning is meant to be a time of unity in diversity. You know, this world is trying to find unity and it's pushing conformity. It's pushing uniformity, saying that's the answer. But what an amazing thing it would be for the media to be on our doorstep on a Sunday morning because they are shocked that we've got liberals and we've got conservatives worshiping together and they are not killing each other. That we could have all of this diversity in the same place and we all have one Jesus who our eyes are focused on and that we are worshiping together in unity. 
That is the unity that only comes through the Holy Spirit doing His work in our lives individually and as a church. We can't do it. But listen, if we allow the Holy Spirit to do it through us, we will change the world because the world will show up in our doorstep and they'll say, hey, how do you do that? This doesn't make sense. We've tried this in culture and it doesn't work. How do you do it? What's going on? You're all different. You're dressed different. You look different. You talk different. But you're all together. How does that work? And we can just say one thing. It's Jesus. Because he's the unifier. He's the one that brings us together. He's the reason for what we're doing here and what, how we live our life. He's the mission that we're on. So maybe, maybe an experiment here in this little place off 299. And we cast a vision that's big enough for all to come and feel welcomed, to feel valuable, to feel needed. I don't know. Maybe we can't do that. But I'd like to try and see what, what God does. Because again, it's not about my ability. It's not about your ability. It's about the Holy Spirit. May we follow Him wherever He leads. For His glory and not for ours. Let's stand and close our service with song.